I learned so much about just really engaging with people who are just diametrically different than I am in so many different ways. All right, Beth, so as you mentioned, uh, the N9 is going to have more business in the area, working on the track, uh, focus on the track. Welcome to Deeper Dish. Shannon, thank you for coming on to my little tiny podcast. Thank you for having me. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, this notion of activism. You've been active as long as I've known you. That's close to been 10 years? Yeah, probably. So where does that activism come from? I mean, I think a few different things. If you want to talk childhood stuff, I mean, even just briefly, I, I was raised in the Chicago public schools. Actually, during the time when I was raised in the 80s was when white flight was really happening. Mm-hmm. And my family talked about race. We talked about issues of equity. We talked about poverty. We talked about the Chicago public schools and what was happening at the schools. And that was also the longest strike that ever happened during the 80s. There was mm-hmm. a five-week strike. For me, as a Chicagoan, particularly as a white Chicagoan, I was lucky that my parents never really divorced those things. Like our whiteness was certainly always present, but race was discussed. Um, Poverty was discussed. Both my parents grew up tremendously poor. Mm -hmm. And then thanks to education and whiteness became upwardly mobile later on in my life. But I also came out as gay when I was in high school. I was 15. There was really nobody who was out. What high school did you go to? When I came out, I was at the Illinois Math and Science Academy. Um, I was at Lincoln Park before that, but when I came out, I was there. Was it supportive? Was it frowned upon? It was was totally frowned upon. But I think that was the standard at the time. You know, I don't pretend like I'm special. I think it was seen as maybe a mental health concern. Um, Oh, really? (laughs) For sure. I'm laughing about it now. It wasn't funny when I was 15. I think it also gave me a sense of like, otherness in this interesting way that I had to think a lot about. And actually, during that time, I got really active around reproductive rights, interestingly enough, (laughs) as a lesbian. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm ever accidentally going to get pregnant, right? But I had friends who had needed access to abortions. And I realized that people picketed clinics and that they went after these, like, I mean, these are young girls, right, trying to access things that they need. And I started working the picket lines at a clinic. And that just means you escort, you get people through the lines. You're Mm -hmm. not to engage with the protesters. You're not to like pick a fight or make a scene or even though that's very difficult. (laughs) Um, And so actually that was my first foray into activism was escorting at a, just a local reproductive rights clinic that also provided abortion. In high school? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That's a lot to take on in high school. Yeah, I mean, I think, why not? Uh, fear. I'm not saying you, you did the right thing. Yeah. But to answer, like, why not? Like, somebody throws stones at you, someone throws Oh, people do throw stuff. I mean, I also think at 15, you don't have the best sense of your own mortality or vulnerability. This is true. <laughs> For me, I kind of felt like, oh, nothing's going to happen to me. I'll be fine. And this is appalling what they're doing to women and young right. women. Right. If we say that anybody who has a uterus and can have a baby cannot make a decision about how that uterus is used, then there's no notion of equality in this country ever. Because if your body can be subject (laughs) to things that are beyond your decisions by law, we've thrown out the notion of equality. If it's driven by religion, that's fine. That's your religion. That's right. right? that's That's your belief system. Don't thrust your belief system on me and the broader country. That's the first thing. The second thing is if people that are against abortions also are saying, keep the government out of my life. There's nothing more invasive as far as the government than policy to check people's ovaries and vaginas. And are they going to tell me that I can't get Viagra or whatever Like next? like You know what you should be doing? You should be funding schools, right? You should be trying to figure out how to keep people out of prisons, right? Or figure out the child welfare system, for (laughs) Christ's sake. I mean, that has a direct relation. I mean, as a foster parent, I mean, I almost laugh when I hear people talk about fetuses and the rights of fetuses. And I'm like, okay, well, how many foster kids do you have, sir? Because I need to know how many children you've taken into your home who come from these circumstances. Because my guess is it's zero, so it sounds like you made a decision to be active, to, to stand up for folks, e- even beyond 
being physically harmed, even though you were naive at the at at the time, right? Like so as you got older, did you develop a fear, a healthy fear, or did you just still were like, I don't give a fuck. Come at me. (laughs) Even starting escorting across picket lines at clinics, for me, it was like, I'm more than likely never going to be in this situation. And so I have to use the power that I have from that, right? I won't be impacted by this in the same way that other women and young women are. And so I'm going to use that for good, right? I'm going to take that power and I'm going to use it for good. This isn't as personal for me. You know, these pictures of aborted fetuses are not as personal for me. The epithets that they're throwing are not as personal for me. And I can use that, right, in order to help. I mean, my sense of otherness, like as a gay person, is also paired with my whiteness, is paired with my middle classness, is paired with my master's degree. I think figuring out the ways to leverage where I did have some power and privilege actually is one of the ways that formed my activism. I mean, until now, right, sitting here at 41 years old, working with people in prison or, you know, Mm -hmm. working on whiteness or whatever it is, there are ways that you can leverage even if you're othered in certain situations, right. right, where you do have some power and privilege. Right. Like we, we have a hard time at work saying people of color or multiculturalism. People like cringe when it's like, it's difficult. We're at that stage where people will send an email to HR and say, hey, you said people of color. I don't think you should be saying that. And I think you should use multicultural. And we're at, we're literally and at you're like, that those point. Those are two absolutely completely different things. Like, do, can but, I define those for you? <laughs> I don't, do you, like you need a dictionary? But that's where we are. But I actually believe that's healthy, right? Because we have to get to the point you where totally do. you have to research and understand and be like, hey, this is what this means. We all don't know. I think generally... The reason why white people are even uncomfortable around saying people of color or black people or indigenous folks or whatever is because in this country's context, I can't speak to other countries. I don't pretend to be that smart. White people are the default. So we don't get raised talking about race. We don't get raised talking about how you're supposed to act in a store when somebody's staring at you, how you're supposed to act when the police stop your father from the back seat. We just go about our business and don't even think about a racial identity, a racial construct, a racial whatever it may be. When we get confronted with our own racism, which of course we have because you get raised in the United States and structurally this is how it works, right? Because our whole country is founded on genocide and slavery, basically. U.S. settler colonialism is one of the most violent, evil things ever. So of course we're raised with some amount of racism. We just shrink like violets because... We don't have any practice talking about race because we were the default. I challenge you to talk to two white folks at work that you feel like you can talk to about this and be like, tell me about your white racial identity. I bet you will get silence. Whereas if somebody were to ask that to you, what's it mean to be like a black man in America? How many podcasts could you do on that? Oh, a whole bunch. (laughs) It should be expected that we're like, because we don't, Grow up thinking about what does it mean to be white in America? I think some of it could be a little bit more sinister, right? Because changing how you look at yourself and things could naturally put you at a disadvantage. That's right. Um, it means redistribution of power. Well, if I change the game, then my my kids and my kids' That's kids right. will have to learn this new game to be like, what does success look like? not thinking about it is not just this like oh i don't have to think about it because i was raised with it. i think it's it's actually like for some people it's like if we change this we no longer will have a hold on the power structure absolutely i, mean, I completely agree with you and whiteness has been strategically redefined in the united states context largely by powerful white men strategically over the years so it didn't used to include poor white people until they realized oh there could be a cross racial class warfare shit we better include poor people it certainly didn't include women until very recently it's evil for some folks there's just like not thinking about it not dealing with that which is a privilege yeah right and for some people it is it's it's sinister our country was founded for white males who were wealthy landowners to have power political economic Our Navy was not created to fight for freedom. Our Navy was created to protect commercial routes from Great Britain. Our country was set up for business. Of 13 colonies, those colonies were businesses that people invested in. 
that Great Britain wanted to get a return on. And That's each right. one of them had different people. When we broke up for the Civil War, mm-hmm. the Confederate Constitution, all those southern states, I think 80% of them, slavery was in their constitution. Well, because it was good business to yeah. have free labor. Yeah, it, it was definitely good business to have free labor. You set up structure and institutions to protect that identity that still lasts to this day. Yes. Right? When it comes to education, when it comes to anti-voters' right act, and all these things, these are systems that were set up, right? And we learn over time, people try to change the narrative. Well, it was about our way of life. And it's like, yeah, your way of life was slavery. Slavery. Your way of life was poor white folks were indentured. If you fundamentally say our constitution has an effect, a positive effect, like who we are as a country, if it has a positive effect on what we are now. If you're a fundamentalist and you, you believe in the constitution, then you also have to believe that the bad parts of it that it allow are a fundamental part of who we are. And until you address that, until you say that was messed up, you can never say you went to Oak Park and you had all these advantages that everybody else had. It doesn't wipe out it doesn't. all these years. See, people don't get it because we do this silly meritocracy crap, right, about picking yourself up by your bootstraps or, what, I, you know, whatever nonsense it is that I can't really bear to repeat because you grow up in this country. For me, I'm expected to get a graduate degree. I'm expected to have a great job. For the most part, I've delivered. I mean, I think my life is different because I'm gay and I have black kids who come from foster care. I mean, you know, there's ways yeah, that I yeah. have, right? <laughs> and choices I've made, right, about who I want to be in the world. But I think... People have to get uncomfortable. People have to really seriously think about redistribution of power, about reparations. I'm going to say it, and I talk about it to anybody who will allow me to talk about it. For me, I feel compelled. I think if we don't at least try to engage white people in talking about whiteness, and I do say white supremacy. I say white privilege, too, but I actually think white privilege doesn't go far enough in terms of what whiteness means in this country. Yeah. People in general are not apt to change unless there is an emotional, a mental, or financial, and sometimes physical benefit to them. The way the world is going, you're going to get some structural changes just because the demographics of our country is changing. So as our country becomes more diverse and we start selling to a different demographic and having to invest in that, you're going to just have some natural changes. What is going to happen, though, is that people are going to try to embrace that demographic change and then try to get elected, get money off of that. And you'll, you'll see it in businesses. It's happening. Totally. It's, it's While they're still consolidating all the wealth for themselves. Yeah. You're in the corporate world. I have never been in the corporate world, so I don't like pretend. You know, I'm a consumer, right? Because I live here, so I'm a consumer. And, you know, I think there are these, like, kind of genius and kind of obvious ways that people, I think, may be pandering to the new majority-minority. While still, if you look at power structures and you look at how wealth is being consolidated, it's benefiting white folks, and particularly white men. There are white women who are adjacent and just as guilty. I don't, you know, I'm not pretending that there aren't. Yeah, I, I think, think you're right that there will be some structural and policy changes. My concern is that Whiteness has such a grip, and particularly in the patriarchy, right? So particularly for for white men, has such a grip around wealth, right, and power. That type of redistribution, I I mean, that's where I sort of am like, and I'm not an economist, and I'm not, you know, I don't, you know. Yeah, but you probably know a few of them that talk to you. Because a global economy as a country or whatever, we have to come to grips of the messes that we created. We have We are not very good at doing that. Well, we're not. We have lots of problems that are generated by our way of life. I like our way of life, but we have to fix certain things, right? I want to continue on this path uh, of your activism. When I met you, your executive director for a long time, mm-hmm. the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance or the Alliance, right? Yep. But you were also the founding executive director, so it was like you were employee, what, one or two? One. Your employee, Absolutely. one, and you grew that, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how your previous notion of activism led you down that path? Yeah. So, like, going from founding executive director to, like, really growing this thing out. Yeah. I'm smiling as you talk about it because it's really, it's such a joy, and it's really not what I ever intended to do. So I became a high school teacher. 
that's what I did. This was in the late 90s. I was at Clemente, and I was the only out teacher there, and it became very clear at many other schools as well. And, you know, simultaneously, I had been working with Stacey Horn primarily, but professors at UIC. So that's where I did my undergraduate and my graduate work. Mm -hmm. UIC is really very social justice oriented. I mean, institutions can always do better. So I'm not pretending like, you know, there's, but this sounds wild to say right now, but at the time it was groundbreaking to think about LGBTQ, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, right? Youth in schools. And we were just getting data and showing, you know, these wild rates of suicide, bullying. Uh, I mean, it sounds obvious to say it right Right. now. It was not obvious at the time. For folks at UIC, it was really becoming an imperative to figure out structurally, how do we address this? Teachers are one way to structurally address it. Because you might not have a supportive family, you might not have a supportive mm-hmm. community, but if you could find somebody at school, gay straight alliances were or GSAs, right, were just becoming a thing <laughs> at the time. Now we take it for granted, mm-hmm. which I think actually speaks to the success of the movement, I would like to say, that this is something we take for granted. It used to be controversial to even think about having a gay straight alliance in a high school, much less a middle school which now there are tons of middle schools that have gay straight Mm -hmm. alliances, right? And gay straight alliances are protective for kids, even if they never attend a meeting, if they go to a school that has a gay straight alliance, they're much more likely to feel safe and supportive. I could go on and on. I'm sure you know this already. Yeah. And Frost served on on the board and we are very grateful for your service. Um, I should say, no, I mean it, you know, people don't think about this enough about serving on boards and about supporting to your point, smaller local activist organizations that actually are making a difference on the ground for people. You know what I, I, I loved about the board was that we are okay with you coming in not knowing shit about shit. So I think a lot of board members joined and learned a lot. There's a huge element of board development and teaching. Honestly, if I hadn't joined that board, I don't think I would have learned like all the stats on there's a huge percentage of LGBT kids on the streets because their families don't accept or embrace, they're susceptible to bullying, higher suicide rates than the national average. It's like all these things are just painful things. And it comes back to like, these are these are fucking kids. Exactly. Right? Like they, they should not be subjected to this. We can agree, we can disagree, but we should be able to take care of children. It definitely gave me information where I could talk to people and say, hey, like, let me, let me help you understand like, you doing this or you saying this is is actually hurtful and is damaging because it's adding already to a very difficult situation. And the, and the other thing that I learned a lot about is that, yeah, it's LGBTQ. Even within that space, everyone isn't treated the same. Exactly. Where we are now from when I first met you, we're in a different space, right? As there is progress being made, there are a whole bunch of people trying to stop that progress. Well, an active backlash. I mean, we've yeah. seen the types of protections that we fought for the early 2000s that were like wild, right? Even yeah. just anti-discrimination coverage. Why is that wild? But to say that you can't get fired as a teacher for being gay was like a big deal. Yeah. To me, that sounds so silly to say, mm-hmm. but there are people working to repeal those things actively right now in this country. Right. We certainly didn't have marriage rights at the time. And yeah. there are people working to repeal marriage. And There is backlash, but on the whole, I mean, I can say, so like my daughter is in fifth grade at, you know, an 80% black, 80% low income school here in the city of Chicago. And she has an out friend. And to me, (laughs) that's wild. Right. I mean, that is, and it's just sort of a given, like nobody was really, you know, it was like, oh, so I mean, of course, you know, my daughter has gay parents. And so, you know, I think she would respond a little bit differently. But when I asked her about it, she's like, no, it's just the way it is. Like some people are gay and some people are straight. And you figure that out at some point in your life and you move on. For me, it just comes back to this idea. Why do you fucking care? Right. I know. Not not you, but like people. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, those gay people are getting married. So fucking what? Tell me how that affects your everyday life. 
I mean, the marriage thing is so interesting and complicated in a different way, I think, than the LGBTQ youth activism is yeah. because, you know, that state's conferring rights. I mean, people act like it's a religious institution. It is a state institution, yeah. right? The state confers rights based on marriage that it does not to people who are not married. Now, I think it's gay people banging on the door of a failing institution. Over half of marriages in this country end up in divorce. <laughs> um, so I'm like, why are we banging on the door of this institution, actually? I don't know that it works so well but the state does confer rights based on it and so on that front you can see like okay yes right it is about equality yes i should have the right to end up in a divorce right exactly i should get divorced just like everybody else and pay an attorney (laughs) the rights that will come in whether it be someone passes away and i mean one of the biggest ones is social security right so my mom draws down on my father's social security she's 72 She has not touched her social security. They got married when they were 22 years old. And that's a huge benefit for her. And something that should she have a very long life, which is possible, right? Knock on all kinds of wood, will be huge benefit to me that she was able to access that type of revenue to support her into her later years. You you became executive director in the early stages. Was that very difficult compared to growing it? I mean, it started out as a coalition, which I can't take a ton of credit for. I got involved with them. And there were folks from UIC, ACLU, Lambda Legal, you know, uh, about face theater, you know, people who were like, oh, wow, we're seeing these data and we're really concerned and we need to do something. The GSA network had been founded in California just a couple years before. So they were kind of a model. Actually, it's funny that California and Illinois were at sort of the forefront of this movement, which is really interesting. And there were teachers in the Chicago public schools. Um, One teacher in particular who helped students start a gay-straight alliance previous to the founding of Mm -hmm. this, her car was bombed in the parking lot. What? Um, This was in, I think, 96, maybe 97. So there were people, there were vanguards in this movement who are not me. (laughs) I want to be really clear about that. I sort of had good timing getting involved with this coalition. And the coalition ended up getting a federal grant from SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. There were only three of them given in the country. And this was, again, the very beginnings of thinking about adverse outcomes for LGBTQ young people. Mm -hmm. So that allowed me to start actually doing work with the coalition. That coalition eventually became the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance. So when we, I, we, I, I don't know, you know, sort of decided like we got to be a 501c3, you know, we got to bring in other foundation funding, private dollars, corporate dollars, whatever it may be. Like there's so much work to do in this state. We can't do that in the form that we're currently in. We then also a couple of years after that merged with GLSEN is the Gay, Lesbian and Straight Education Network. They were founded as the Gay, Lesbian and Straight Teachers Network and were vanguards also in supporting just teachers initially. Like that teacher who had her car bombed, right? Teachers needed help. That's crazy. They had had a a Chicago-based chapter, and we merged with them because it's just like, we need to be working at this together. It's not like there's millions and gazillions of dollars being directed at this. We need to all be working together. I think when I left, there was 12 of us. That was five years ago, which is kind of wild, just over five years ago. We did professional development for teachers around sexual orientation and gender identity. We supported young people doing Gay-Straight Alliance and tons of other work. We got into juvenile justice and child welfare work. LGBTQ young people are also overrepresented in those systems, particularly transgender and gender nonconforming kids of color and especially black kids. I want to be very clear. So the work had expanded in that sense, too. We had an office in Champaign when I left. So we were really trying to be like legit statewide instead of just Chicago people staying there statewide, (laughs) which is a problem in this state because we have a very long state. I learned to love Peoria and Bloomington Normal and like all these places that I never thought growing up as a Chicagoan that I would find like my people. Peoria It's like a mini Chicago. They have a South side. It's all black. Everybody thinks it's the wrong side of the tracks. Like, (laughs) I was like, oh, these are my people. Like, this is Peoria, you know? What did you find harder? Establishing, helping establish the alliance or growing it? I'm like an accidental executive director. That's what I always tell people. I think growing it was way harder. Because, like, I remember the moment I had to figure out how to administer group health insurance. Oh, I remember you talking (laughs) about I say this to everybody, but I'm like a high school teacher who got a master's of public health because I thought like violence prevention was super important at a population level. That's why I pursued yeah. public health at all. Yeah. And I, 
I was like, how am I supposed to do? Like, I there are brokers. What? Who's yeah. talking about what? And this goes back <laughs> to your point about being on the board. You know, and you were talking about you know you sort of came in and you had to learn about this LGBTQ stuff. I mean, you're a business person. Yeah. You know, you have skills that I don't have as an executive director, or I had to go out and develop. And like for me, there was also this process of realizing like I'm not doing the programming anymore. I hire fabulous, wonderful, amazing people who are still all in my life in wonderful ways to do this, but I don't get to do this. Like I get to go ask people for money and I get to administer group health insurance, right? And payroll and make sure that 990 is done. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on and on and we did get a payroll service and cut checks and work with the auditor. And I I think that is, I think where a lot of executive directors can flounder because, we do get to still set vision, right? That's part of our role. Yeah. But giving up actually implementing it yeah. is tough. And I don't think I ever gave it up like fully. I would still go into schools and do professional development when no one else could do it or when I was the only one who could travel or, right. you know, whatever it is. But mainly my job was all of the, you know, working with the board, right? Yeah. I, I mean, mainly my job was all of those other things. So do you think you left because you weren't as close to the stuff? I left because I thought it was the right thing to do. There's tons of literature about founding executive directors and their usefulness over time. And people debate about this. So I'm not, you know, I took my own position. I mean, I said I would do 10 years. I did 13. You know, for me, it was like I made this commitment. I said that I, you know, was going to move on. Right. Open this up for new vision, new input, new information, new leadership. I think that is the right thing to do. I miss it all the time. I mean, it's amazing work. And I think the way it's evolved into sort of the intersections with criminal justice and child welfare and education justice issues and the movement is really pushing itself around its own whiteness, right? And to your point, those intersections between and among some of those letters and, you know, where power and privilege lies there. So one of the things you became involved in recently um, was it is it NTA the school? Yeah, I got involved because my kids went there, and and this is why. Now I may have been involved otherwise. It's hard to say, but um, so NTA is a really interesting school in the city of Chicago. It sits on the corner of Cermak and State. It's beautiful. It was built as the Ickes homes around it were being torn down. So it was a promise to that community. There were kids who were like watching their apartments get torn down as they sat in that school. As Ickes kids were displaced, they were allowed to stay at NTA no matter where they went. And they always had a right of return. So there's a bunch of vacant land around NTA right now that's owned by the CHA, Chicago Housing Authority. They're supposed to be developing it. Hasn't happened. But Ickes folks still have a right of return to whatever they build there in terms of low-income housing. So NTA over the years did well, it struggled. It was a receptor for a few of the closing schools in the in the great school closings of 2013. Yep. As we all know, that disrupts school environments significantly. It dropped to what Chicago Public Schools calls a level three, which is the worst in their quality ratings of schools. And then had been on a, a battle really ever since then to sort of come back from what CPS did to them. <laughs> So my son started in kindergarten at at NTA. My daughter was not there at the time, although she came the next year. I've had a long history there. I mentioned earlier my kids are adopted out of foster care. They both have significant struggles in very unique and their own ways when it comes to school. And so where they go to school is super important. NTA is also, a, you know, what we call a Title I, so a federal level designation. They get extra funds to help kids like my kids. And so it matters also that they're in that type of school environment. And NTA loops teachers, and they have what I used to call special education teachers are now called diverse learner teachers, but in every classroom. And so there's levels of support. And anyway, I could go on and on and on. What happened? <laughs> was. Um, And most folks in Chicago have probably seen or read about this in one way or another. Things became very suspect to some of us parent leaders when South Loop Elementary, so South Loop is right on the bordering neighborhood to NTA. Now some people would tell you that South Loop goes south of Cermak, which is interesting because that's gentrification. But the dividing line had always been 18th Street, right? South Loop had been complaining about overcrowding for years. They were granted a new building to be built at 16th and Dearborn. So if you know where that Mariano's is, right there, right? And we thought to ourselves, well, that's huge. You know, if they keep the current one and then they have this new one for the older kids, supposedly, like, 
what are they, th- this is so weird, right? What are they thinking? And so we had gotten suspicious. We set up a meeting with Pat Dowell, who is my alderman where I live and also the alderman at NTA. Mm -hmm. And she was very cagey. We're like, are they going to change the boundary to 22nd? Are they trying to close NTA? So the majority of students that go to NTA come from the Hilliards, which is right across the street, right across 22nd Street or Cermak from NTA and from the Long Grove Homes, which are 20th, Cullerton, and Michigan. Are these all... Projects or yeah, they're I mean they're you know predominantly black low income housing, Uh, and that's where the majority of NTA's population comes from. And in fact, South Loop Elementary had always very specifically not wanted those kids in their school. So there was a group of us, probably ten or twelve of us initially, that were like, "This doesn't look good, right?" I grew up here, I know the politics, I get it. So we were finally able to sort of corner Janice Jackson, who at the time was not the CEO, right? She was the chief education officer. So she was number two in command. At a forum, we brought up school closures and said, we're really worried about NTA. And she said, oh, yeah, we're going to move the boundary to 22nd Street. That's what we're doing to fill up the new South Loop. So you're going to lose your student population. And I was like, whoa. So that comment at that forum... And I was the one who asked the question. So for me, it was like, and my kids were with me, was like a direct, I was like, she's saying she's closing NTA. I mean, she didn't say those words, but she said, you're going to lose your student population. So, and CPS is allowed to close underutilized schools by their own policy. At this point, NTA had clawed up to being a level one school at that point, which is great, but they're still one plus. So that just launched this whole, you know, parents were in, I mean, we were, what are we going to do? But, and, le- but level one is a lot better than level three. Oh, yeah. Level one is great. I mean, if you look around the city of Chicago, yeah. and especially with, you know, quote unquote, people like to say the population that NTA deals with. I mean, <laughs> we don't deal with yeah. them. They are us. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm laughing. I should be crying. But so we just organized. It really immediately became clear to us we had to be well or we started to try to FOIA to figure out like where is this coming from what's happening then they announced this plan to make NTA after they had taken all our kids they're gonna make NTA a high school because South Loop quote-unquote doesn't have a high school right South Loop is zoned to Phillips High School which is at 39th and King Drive Mm -hmm. it is currently a level two school it was a level three it's getting better let me be clear it is all black and poor right I just want to be really clear about this. And the rhetoric during this campaign to save NTA about Phillips from both the South Loop community from whom I expect it and from CPS leadership from whom I do not expect it was that Phillips is an unacceptable option for South Loop families. Janice Jackson, Chip Johnson on stage at forum after forum after forum. Even when I stood up and asked questions like, I'm sorry, You sound like this is an alien high school that has been invaded and dropped down at 39th and King Drive and not a school that is your actual responsibility. Hmm. This school is your actual responsibility. Oh, well, South Loop families can't be expected to send their children there. But Bronzeville families can, right? Closing those four high schools in Englewood, those students can be redirected to Phillips. Yeah. There's so many levels of just frank beyond disappointment yeah. and this was before she was ceo right yes so the, the, the thing about it though to be fair right like you said you expected to hear from the south Loop parents but there there are realities out there whether we whether we agree with them or not you've been the phillips probably in your life absolutely i've been the phillips i i play football down there we practiced over there we go to their games um, yeah so yes and they, they do have a really great football program there um but now they do but like now they do yeah but the reality is, is that that environment to some people, whether it's right or wrong, the perception, they believe, no, no way am I sending my, Look, my I, kid down there, right? So she's, as a CEO or a chief education officer, she's got to juggle that. She's got to deal with this alderman. She's got to do it. I mean, she can let them be racist in classes. She doesn't have to do it herself. I, I don't disagree I, with I you. I mean, that. so that's my distinction yep. there. And I do agree with you. But what we do know, mm-hmm. and South Loop Elementary is actually an example, and NTA is an example, that when parents who have a certain amount of access, that be mm-hmm. it education, yep. be it money, be it time, yeah. whatever it is, when you wrap your arms around a school, You can change it. No doubt. No doubt. So now I know that people aren't going to choose to wrap their arms around Phillips. That's what I choose. And I hope that it is an option for my children. It is my neighborhood high school. 
I understand that they might not choose that. Right. But I know in reality that if they actually did that, Phillips would be a wholly different place. Right. And I hope still a home for the students who currently go to school there. I yes. want to say that simultaneously. Yes. Because NTA and the fight to save NTA is actually, I think, legitimately the only cross-class and cross-racial organizing effort I have ever been involved in. And I've been involved in ones that sort of almost get there. Yep. But NTA, I learned so much about just really engaging with people who are just diametrically different than I am in so many different ways. Those of us who who do have like we could go to, you know, Chicago Public School unelected board meetings are during the day. <laughs> they are basically you need four or five hours of your time to show up to make two minutes of commentary. You have to sign up through an online portal exactly 48 hours in advance to get your slot. We learned very quickly that there were some of us who, because our jobs are flexible or, you know, whatever it may be, would be the ones who would show up to board meetings. And I was one of those people. And I had experience at board meetings for my years at the Alliance, right? I knew how things operated. I understood the machinations. And then we understood there were people who, you know, would be interviewed for news stories maybe at nine o'clock at night because that's when they're off of work and that's when they have them. And we just went at it. Somebody who works at NTA, his name is JP, John Pointer, but everybody calls him JP. And he's really, he's the security guard, but he's really the mayor. And he's been there for the whole school history. He went to Phillips himself um, and lived in the Ickies until they were torn down. And JP started something on Friday mornings called JP's Corner, which was basically parent organized, you know, family organizing, but really to ensure that the people most impacted by this were Mm -hmm. included in the solutions that we were presenting. That's fair. This is organic and also strategic, I would say. When you start try and take things away from people's kids it's amazing how motivated people can get and they should be i mean some of those mamas their kids came there when they were displaced from other schools and they were like not again absolutely not again it's it's painful i won't do this one more time yeah it's tough on kids it's so tough on. we forget that and and to your point janice who i've spoken to and communicated with on online her responsibility should be to students all of them across the city, not to Alderman, not to Rahm Emanuel. Well, it's her boss. It's her boss. You, you, you do have to make your boss happy, right? If you are not comfortable with the ethics of your boss, then you need to make some decisions. I totally agree. But as the CEO or even the chief education officer, she's going to have to make sacrifices that you're not going to be happy with, but they should never come at the expense of a child. And they should never come at the expense of making a child and that child's family feel less than others. Yeah. The long and short of what we learned, and we yeah. did this through FOIAing, and we eventually got pro bono legal help because we got media attention, and blah, 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 blah. What we learned yep. is it's this simple. There is a group of very powerful homeowners called the Prairie District Neighborhood Alliance, those mansions on Prairie. Everybody knows yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. They oppose the Wind Trust Arena that Rom wanted to build. Right over by McCormick Place. Yep. They're so powerful that Rahm had to deal with them. So in his negotiations with the Prairie District Neighborhood Alliance, mm-hmm. he said, if you agree to step back about wind trust, because I want it built, I'll give you a high school. Which is another bad idea. I just... Oh my God, don't even get me started. Okay. So they said, fine, if you give us NTA as a high school, we will shut up about the wind trust arena. Right, right. And we got all these emails. We eventually got them. And this is when Barbara Bird Bennett, who is now in federal prison, let me be very clear, yeah. was head of the Chicago Public Schools. So the marching orders were given. They were given to Dowell. They were given to Triple B, I call her at the time. Mm. The marching orders were given. Figure out a way to close NTA. We need it for a high school for the Prairie District Neighborhood Alliance. And that is the shortest answer to the question yep. that there is. Believe it or not, you lucked out because you got a very inexperienced CEO who told you something that she probably shouldn't have told you. And I don't think she meant it in the spirit of candor. She was just She answered a question. Right. Yeah. And sparked a whole entire movement. Right. The answer to that question and should have been... Well, we haven't made any decisions yet. Well, we're doing the, the population analysis yeah. right now. No, oh, not, no, not even that. She should have <laughs> said, we, we don't have the information right now. We're still, we're, everything's on the table. And then you, that probably, you probably would have still gotten to this point. But I think it so. It would have been. It probably, we would have been less organized or maybe sort of less 
fucking angry. I don't know. And even after we got all of those emails that proved all of those things, they were kind of like, well, yeah. So even after we got all that information that to us was like, this is corruption, to them was like, oh, this is how it operates. Like, good for you. You got these emails. Like, no one cares. Like, God bless. And we actually ended up stopping the closure with a lawsuit. So we became level one plus during that time, which I think we are a unicorn. So in terms of the kids we deal with, Mm -hmm. right? The air quotes are, I hope, obvious. (laughs) You know, an 80% black, 80% low-income school, a pre-K through eight on the South side to be a level one plus is just unheard. You know what I mean? Like we beat CPS at their own game. And South Loop dropped down to a one during that same time. Mm -hmm. The lawsuit basically stated that it was racial discrimination to take these kids and send them to a school that's of lesser quality because that's what they were proposing to do, to take these kids from a level one plus to a one. And the judge agreed and granted what's called an injunction. So Mm -hmm. it's not like we've won. We have a stay of execution. But because the mayor is now changing, right, Ram at that point, we thought would be for another term. You know, I mean, things have changed Forever. so dramatically yeah. since then yeah. that our senses, and I think we're right, that no one's going to, you know what I mean? It's just going to be dead in the water, right? They're not going to go after it you because the judge grant, you never know. But the judge granted the injunction, and so it would be yeah. difficult to, to go the, after the, it. The problem with that is like you still have to do more work than other people just That's to right. keep a one, one plus school open. And there are schools around the city in all types of neighborhoods that are struggling to get to one or one plus, right? And and that's crazy. So you have way more work to do, which is supports this argument that certain people in certain communities right. have to do more to get the this same amount. This is the analogy of, of like the black experience in this country. I mean, yeah. I, I don't need to point this out to you, yeah. but it's like how many people were raised with their parents saying, you got to work harder, you got to do better, yeah. you got to go the extra mile, you got to shoot. Oh, you know, like yeah. whatever it is, yeah. like NTA is that work harder, go farther, go faster, yeah. be better. We're going to build a brand new school in the South Loop. I drive past that every day. And I don't think the kids who live in Long Grove and Hillier Homes should have to walk past that brand new school and go to another school if they don't want to. And that's how this conversation started. We will continue. And to say that folks from the Long Grove home who are here, you can speak to the folks from the Long Grove homes or the Hilliards, they're here today. They will not walk past 16th and Dearborn to go to 22nd and state. That's geographically incorrect. We have access to a state of the art facility level one school. With only- and one of the lessons from NTA is that families matter. To my earlier sort of point about this, like cross class, I mean, certainly cross racial, but cross class organizing which doesn't often happen in this city i mean even a lot of the like radical mm-hmm. organization you know i mean if you are working at mcdonald's you can't show up to shut down lakeshore drive you don't have the time right. the resources or the energy right so a lot of those it's hard to make mm-hmm. them cross class because yeah. of access issues yeah. and that's my bit i mean i'm still humbled <laughs> right. by what i've learned organizing with families at nta yeah. You know, because we just put it on the table and said, look, okay, some of us can go to these board meetings. Some of us can't. You know what I mean? Like some of us can help provide childcare. Some of us can't. Right. Like some of us can, you know, pay for food or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, let's just do it. was like a power analysis, quick and dirty power analysis. You know, what can we do? But we knew we wanted to have folks also on the front lines Mm -hmm. and not lose their jobs. So how do we work around those schedules or mm-hmm. what people need or the yeah. fact that they have four kids, right? And they're on their yeah. own, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. We know family involvement is really, really important in terms of school success. But we also know that there are structural barriers to people being yeah. involved. Yeah. yeah, That's what you have to grapple with. Yeah. So like, do you think activism needs to change beyond the marches? Because that still has a place and a value. If you're marching and you're not following that up with action, in, in other things to like stop shopping at that place that, that the gas station that treats you like shit, right? You know you need gas, go somewhere else, right? That's how you, like, do you think it needs to change or do you think it's... Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's an interesting question and I don't pretend to be an expert. I mean, I do have to say, like, I am a little bit disheartened with sort of just like the march, like stand on a corner, honk if you love whatever kind yeah. of shit, right? It's not my, I don't spend my time doing it. I. Yeah. Certainly have taken my kids to some rallies and so I want them to have that experience yeah. and sort of that understanding. And uh, when Trump first tried to do the ban on immigrants and so we went out to a few, I mean, those mass, yeah. mass, because mo- I want them to know what it feels like to take, to shut down a street, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> I want them to know what it feels like. Hey, we're going to shut this shit down. Right. Come. You know, this I mean, education. I think it's important, right? right? I think it, it is still a tool. And yeah. we, I mean, they were like, oh, we're going to shut down Jackson. I'm like, we are shutting down Jackson. Come on, let's go. Let's shut it down. Um, and I think they, they need that as part of their own political education yeah. um, so that they understand what the tools are. That being said, I mean, I think even we used FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, I speak yeah. acronym, but, you know, yeah, as yeah. a huge tool in the NTA battle, you know, there are so many more strategies mm-hmm. than simply, yep. you know, taking over a street. I mean, sometimes you just need to demonstrate numbers. Yep. And I think... Okay, yes, if sometimes you just need like when when Trump was not allowed to speak at the UIC pavilion, yeah. we were in the streets, right? Yeah. And that uh, you all were everywhere. I was going I was literally on the train to the Bulls game. You all were on the like I was like I'm with y'all, but if y'all make me late, for I, the I need Bulls to go to the game, Bulls game. I'm I'm really going to be upset. I'm with, I, I I promise you I'm with you. I think it's right. You all should have the right to do that. Some elements you went too far, but I'm I'm trying to get to the United right. Center. Yeah, no, I mean, and so like that is an example of a mass mobilization yeah. that was successful. Yeah. I don't know the the data, but because it's appalling and I don't remember, but around sort of how black money stay, how long it stays in black neighborhoods yeah. versus how long white money or Korean money or you know yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah. And you know, I've done the work. I, I live at 46 and King Drive. Yeah. I to know even which of the hair stores, even stuff I get for my daughter, right, are black owned versus not. Yeah. That's not always obvious, right? And and actually a lot of those businesses, in fact, are not black. You would anticipate that they're black owned. They aren't. Um yep. and so it's like, how do you keep money in in my own community? I have to be super aware and do my research and understand where I'm spending my money. Um, and that's just a tiny example. Right. Um, but that happens in black neighborhoods everywhere. Yep. Right. It's not yep. just unique to my neighborhood. Yep. Um, and then and then you have to go even a step further to say, okay, even though it's black owned, are those people reinvesting that in the kids? I mean, probably not. It's a lot right? of work. It's a lot because of work. Because that's hard. It's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's hard to do. Um, there's something that you wanted to talk about, which is, and I know we danced around a little bit, was the interrogating whiteness. So explain what that is. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I think we talked a lot about it. I mean, about sort of white fragility and, you know, this yeah. lack of understanding of whiteness as an actual, like, racial. First of all, it's made up. I mean, I think everybody knows that, but I'll start with that. It, whiteness is a construct. It is probably one of the most powerful mythologies in American life. So I can say that it's fake, but also acknowledge that it has a tremendous amount of power simultaneously. Right. right? So I could have more genetically in common with you than I have with any given white person on the street. Whiteness is not a a thing. (laughs) It's nothing. But it is a thing. Right. And so interrogating whiteness is actually something that came from my personal life. So raising black children in America, which is super complicated and folks are allowed to have their own thoughts about it honestly I personally started thinking about it as like can I interrogate my own whiteness enough to be a good parent or even a decent parent right Mm -hmm. or like to really figure out how you do this with some amount of integrity so it's personal for me sort of internal and a journey with my closest friends and yep and then I really started thinking so my kids were in the third and fourth grades respectively the first time the cops were called on them and I mean, this, well, this is where we live, right? I yeah. mean, and for me, I mean, interrogating my own whiteness has always been a priority, but it made me really start thinking like, okay, I need, other people need to do Like, hello, you yeah. know, we're just going to keep perpetuating all of the same stuff right. if we're not all engaged in this. I don't know, pretend like I can get every white person engaged in this work. But yeah. the way I'm structuring it right now, and it's not a moneymaker, let me be really clear, is just in in study groups of white folks. And I am starting with the choir. I'm going to be really honest. I'm working with white people who are interested in doing this work, right. who have done some amount of their own personal or maybe even professional like mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion work. You know, yep. I'm working at an organization that has been doing diversity, equity, inclusion work for years, but still has like all white leadership. Mm-hmm. So they haven't like pierced that barrier. Yeah. Right. And yep. they're trying to figure out how do we do that? And so right now it's, it's eight sessions every other week between 90 minutes and two hours with like homework. I, pre- I prefer homo work. That's what we used to say at the Alliance, but homework in between <laughs> that like, you know, engages you around the history and the structure and the strategic redefinition of whiteness mm-hmm. in the American context over time. Yep. Right. The title, the name for corporations that want to do, engage in this. That's your, your your name. 
Yeah, it scare, I, them, they, they scare them away. Totally. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is purposeful because that's how I've structured it for myself. Um, and I don't know that corporations are my target. Now, somebody that I work with, corporations maybe corporations could it. be there. To, oh, everybody needs it. Yeah. The need is broad, wide, deep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I believe that. And I don't know that I am exactly the right person to fill various areas of that need. My hope is that if we can get a community of practitioners, mm-hmm. and I mean that broadly, mm-hmm. um, not just in Chicago. I mean, Chicago super needs it, but yeah. <laughs> not just in Chicago. Yep. Detroit needs it and mm-hmm. LA needs it. And I mean, you know, there maybe then there would be people yeah. who could figure out how you partner with, cor- I mean, Robin D'Angelo, who just wrote Right Fragility. Okay. She actually, I think, specialized in working with tech companies on this stuff. God bless. I don't think that's my job. I think I'm a little too radical. I'm a little too out there for them. Like, I know I'm a little cute, right? I can dress up and smile. Um, but <laughs> like, you know, in general, that might not be my target audience, right? Yeah, but maybe. it's hers. Yeah. And I may work with other people over time who right. are like, oh, I feel like I could take this into, I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Marketing companies. I could take this into, I mean, who, who knows, right. right? My wheelhouse largely is nonprofits. Yep. I think that's fine because yeah. I think there's, this is embedded in nonprofits because it's embedded in our culture. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's, it's a lot of choir in the nonprofit space. Right? There's a lot of choir except that there's a lot of all white boards and all white leadership that's, teams. That's fair. That's and fair. to me, that's telling. Because I think what I've seen is a lot of success doing um, quote unquote diversity initiatives at entry mm-hmm. level positions. There is way less success yep. around leadership. Yep. I, and I think we need to look real hard at that. Yeah. Right now is the easiest time in corporate America to get in on diversity and inclusion because they know the demographic shift is happening and they realize that if you, if you take, it, take a step back and go, they know that there's money to be made over there and they need this. They might be doing it for their purposes, but we need to get in there and infiltrate this so that we start thinking about things in this way. I think it could go along. That's my only challenge. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm just starting out here. And I'm also trying to support myself, you know, with my other consulting work yeah. that I do have to make money somehow. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So I've got that. I just launched the firm, the Groundswell Alliance. Yeah. So that's going on. And, you know, for me, it's a journey. And yep. I did. I think I'd be like 41 and, you know, running a consulting firm and yep. trying to dismantle white supremacy. I don't you know, I don't know that that's what I <laughs> I thought, or volunteering with people in prisons, or it's it's part of the journey. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah. Audio design, editing, mixing is done by the team at Anamnesis Audio. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com.